Hello, and thank you for letting me be a part of your life today. In this talk that I'm going to do, you're going to learn how to establish a new level of customer service, what I call the reward level of service. It's a level of service where you lock into a biblical principle that will differentiate you from your competition. Let's begin by turning to the Word, the Word of God, the business manual, and Luke 12. And I'm going to start with verse 35. Be dressed in readiness and keep your lamps alight, and be like men who are waiting for their master when he returns from the wedding feast, so that they may immediately open the door to him when he comes and knocks. Verse 37. Blessed are those slaves whom the master shall find on the alert when he comes. Truly I say to you that he will gird himself to serve and have them recline at the table and will come up and wait on them. Whether he comes in the second watch or even in the third and finds them so, blessed are those slaves. And be sure of this, that if, he, if the head of the house had known at one hour the thief was coming, he would not have allowed his house to be broken into. And you too be ready, for the Son of Man is coming at an hour that you do not expect. What did we just read here? We read to be on the alert because you do not know when the master is going to come. As a business owner, you have a master, and it's the marketplace, your customers. And you must be alert to the marketplace, be sensitive to what is changing in your industry. You know, history is filled with businesses that did not remain alert in the marketplace. They rested on their past success. They became passive. Another business came in and seized the market from them. Who's the thief? The thief is your competition. They're looking for ways to increase their market share and decrease yours. In that same chapter of Luke, at verse 15, it says, And he said to them, Beware and be on your guard against every form of greed, for not even when one has an abundance does his life consist of his possessions. And he told them a parable, saying, The land of a certain rich man was very productive. And he began reasoning to himself, saying, What shall I do since I have no place to store my crops? Verse 18, And he said, This is what I will do. I will tear down my barns and build larger ones, and there I will store all my grain and my goods. And I will say to my soul, Soul, you have many goods laid up for many years to come. Take your ease, eat, drink, and be merry. But God just said to him, You fool, this very night your soul is required of you, and now who will own what you have prepared? What we just read is what has happened so many times in the marketplace. Businesses that have been successful and thinking everything is fine, thinking the big profit ball is going to just keep on rolling, and they take their ease, they sit back and they think everything is fine, and nothing's going to change, as we read in verse 19. Verse 20 says, Now who will own what you have prepared? Kmart, we read today, Kmart's in bankruptcy, barely hanging on, and yet they started years before Walmart, who's the number one retailer now. now. For years, that was Sears. Sears prepared the way. They took their ease. They didn't change. They didn't stay focused on their master, the marketplace. Now, the two key points we've just discussed is, one, be alert to your master, the marketplace, and to your competition. And two, be on your guard against every form of greed. 
Success can cause laziness. Success can cause lack of focus on the operation. Success can cause lack of focus on the consumer and on competition, as we, as we read in verse 19. The reality is that a business must constantly change. Let's turn over to Matthew, the ninth chapter. Read verses 16 and 17. Matthew 9, 16 and 17. But no one puts a patch of unshrunk cloth on an old garment, for the patch pulls away from the garment, and a worse tear results. Nor do men put new wineskin into old wineskins, otherwise the wineskins burst, and the wine pours out, and the wineskins are ruined. But they put new wine into fresh wineskins, and both are preserved. What we read here is you can't have innovation, new products, new ideas with the same old structure. The infrastructure of a business must change. If your sales are increasing, you can't support those sales with, this, with the old infrastructure. What will happen is the quality of your product and or your service will suffer. Now this infrastructure I discuss in depth in my talk titled, Why Can't You Grow Your Business? But a business is ever changing. It never stays the same. What worked yesterday doesn't necessarily mean it's going to work today. Your competition changes. The marketplace changes. Let's read from Luke 5, chapter 5 of Luke. And I'm going to start with verse 4. And when he, Jesus, had finished speaking, he said to Simon, Put out into the deep water and let down your nets for a catch. And Simon, who was a business a business person, answered and said, Master, we worked hard all night and caught nothing, but at your bidding I will let down the nets. And when they had done this, they enclosed a great quantity of fish, and their nets began to break. And they signaled to their partners in the other boat for them to come and help them. And they came and filled both of the boats so that they began to sink. I always have to laugh at this. They've caught so many fish, the boat was beginning to sink because they had so much product in their nets. And yet they had tried to fish all night long and couldn't catch anything. You see, you can't have innovation, new products, new ideas with the same old structure. What we see here is an experienced business person, a fisherman who knew his business. He knew the best opportunity to be successful was to fish at night and in shallow water. But he had done that, he had worked hard, but he had not been profitable. He hadn't caught any fish. The master, the marketplace, said, do it differently and I will respond. So the business, in this case Simon, the businessman, responded and he became successful. He was seized with amazement. If you read verse number 9, it says, for amazement had seized him and all his companions because of the catch of fish which they had taken. Why? Because they were able to change and respond to the marketplace. You have to respond to the marketplace. You have to change because the marketplace is going to change. You cannot rest on your past success. You can't become passive and continue to be successful. Business owners have basic assumptions about who their customer is why they buy their product, what their competitors are doing, and how their industry is doing overall. 
But if the marketplace changes and you're still operating under the old assumptions, the business can run into big trouble. You have to know what your competition is doing. You must be aggressive and not rest on past success. You must be alert to your customer and their changing needs and desires. Now based on what I've just discussed, let's look at your business and the level of service you provide. And we are going to find out how you can achieve the reward level of service. Now, I know you're wondering what that is, but stay with me because you're going to find out. Now you know giving customers top-notch service is essential in today's fiercely competitive marketplace. Customers must be your number one priority. Uh, they've taken surveys and it's proven that great service pays well. A survey showed that better performers on service charge about 9% more for their products or service and they, they grew twice as fast as those with less rated service. Did you know that it costs the business five times more to get a new customer than it does to maintain the customer you already have? And too often time and money is spent trying to attract new customers while the customer you already have is taken for granted or in many cases is totally ignored. Customer service is to serve. I remember years ago, Ross Perot, one of the richest men in America, someone asked him the question, what advice would you give someone on how to be successful? And he said, learn all you can learn in the industry you're in, find the needs in that industry that are not being met, and meet those needs. Become the provision for those needs. Serving is to sow or to plant. Think of your customers as your field. How does this, let's look at a farmer. How does a, sir, a farmer serve a field? He supplies the provisions that field needs to be productive. He breaks up the ground, he fertilizes the soil, he waters, he serves the field. He begins to sow into that field and he sees nothing in return to begin with. He's giving his time, he's giving his life to that field but doesn't see any results at first. But then one day that seed will push itself up through the soil and will begin to grow and multiply. What does, what does that mean? What does the field do when the farmer does what he's supposed to do? It responds to the farmer serving its needs and the day will come when that farmer will reap, in other words, collect or gather from that field and it becomes a provision for him but there's always an abundance because it always becomes a provision for others besides that farmer. So the question I have for you is what seeds have you planted in your field, your customers? Are you meeting the needs of your customers? Remember you must sow before you reap. If a farmer plants in every other row Will he receive the maximum that can be produced by that field? Well, of course not. The potential is not reached because he planted in every other row. So what is the potential of your field? What is the reward level of service you can attain in your business? There's that reward level of service again. Turn with me to 2 Corinthians, the 6th chapter, or excuse me, 2 Corinthians the ninth chapter and the sixth verse. It says, Now this I say, 
He who sows sparingly shall also reap sparingly, and he who sows bountifully shall also reap bountifully. So the more you sow or serve, the more you reap. This is a law. This is a biblical principle. Now let's read about another law principle. If you remember, as I mentioned in the talk, a renewing of your mind, a principle is a fundamental truth, a law, a doctrine, or a motivating force upon which others are based. So I'm going to turn over to the seventh chapter of Matthew, and I'm going to read verse 12. And I read the same verse in a renewing of your mind. But again, I want to come back to this, to this principle, this biblical principle. Matthew 7, 12. Therefore, whatever you want others to do for you, do so for them, for this is the law and the prophets. So if you think about it, in the course of a business day, there will be many opportunities to act beneficially or wrongly to deal with people fairly or not so fairly. Think about your favorite restaurant. Why is it your favorite? Good food, atmosphere, service. You continue to go back because the restaurant is predictable. The quality of the food is predictable. They provide a uniform, predictable service. You know what to expect when you go in there. When a level of service and quality of food is excellent, then that expectation cannot be violated. Because you're only as good as the last contact you had with your customer. Well, what about your business? What about at your workplace? You be the customer. Go outside and look back through the window of your business. What do you see? Are you meeting the needs of your customers? Look at every point of contact with the customer. What is the level of service you're providing? What's the potential level of service you could be providing? Every business, you know, there's no business that's perfect. Problems do arise. Now the question is, do you patch the problem or do you fix it? Do you blame the problem on an unreasonable customer? Do you get offended personally when a customer complains? Do you justify your actions or lack of action? You know, if this customer knew what I'd done for them, they wouldn't be in here complaining. Do you blame the problem on someone else? Your customer receives excellent service only when he or she perceives it as excellent service. If you're going to reach your reward level of service, you must be service-motivated and not profit-motivated. Uh-oh. Stepped on somebody's toe here. Now we're talking about money. Profit-motivated. But think about this. The bottom line is down where it belongs. At the bottom. Way above it in importance are the infinite number of events that produce, hopefully, that profit. The profit is the end result of other things that you do. Now, if you're profit-motivated, if that's what really motivates you, it's going to hinder reaching the reward level of service. Now, don't get me wrong. I know a business must make a profit. Without a profit, there won't be, there won't be a business. But profit comes by serving the needs of others. You must have a strong customer ethic that guides your business, even if it means costing you money at times. You have to view it not as a cost, but as an investment. My favorite restaurant in Metro Atlanta does that. Most restaurants, you know, let's say if you ordered a steak and it wasn't cooked correctly, it was overcooked, undercooked, whatever, 
and they had to cook another, most restaurants will apologize and maybe they'll offer you a free dessert or a drink. But my favorite restaurant fixes the problem and then he takes the meal off the check. And the reason is they believe that their mistake caused a bad experience for their customer. While you're waiting for the recook, everyone else is eating. And you're waiting. You end up eating after everyone else is finished. You're basically eating by yourself while everyone else is finished. This restaurant, the Village Tavern, is one of the most successful restaurants in Metro Atlanta. And the reason I believe, besides the quality service, quality food is the customer, not the money, is the most important thing. They understand the cost of the steak is an investment for future business. Now let's turn to a scripture. Let's turn to Luke, the 10th chapter. And we pick up the story here where someone asked Jesus, Who is my neighbor? Who is my neighbor? In verse 30, Jesus replied and said, A certain man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho. And he fell among robbers, and they stripped him and beat him and went off, leaving him half dead. And by chance, a certain priest was going down on that road, and when he saw him, he passed by on the other side. And likewise, a Levite also, when he came to the place and saw him, passed by on the other side. But a certain Samaritan who was on a journey came upon him, and when he saw him, he felt compassion, and came to him and bandaged up his wounds pouring oil and wine on them, and he put him on his own beast and brought him to an inn and took care of him. Verse 35. And on the next day he took out two denarii and gave them to the innkeeper. innkeeper this is money. And said, Take care of him, and what, whatever more you spend, when I return I will repay you. Which of these three do you think proved to be a neighbor to the man who fell into the robber's hands? Verse 37, And he said, The one who showed mercy toward him. And Jesus said to him, Go and do the same. This man who was on the side of the road was one big problem. And as those that came by saw him, they saw nothing good that could come out of stopping and helping this man with his needs. He was going to take up their time. They had other things to do. They had appointments to keep. There was nothing in it for them. They weren't going to profit by helping this man. Think about this. When you're dealing with, a, with customer problems, you have to discard the idea of profit. If you see a return of merchandise or an irate customer as a loss of profit, you may avoid the best solution to the problem. Let me show you a principle. Let's go to Matthew 6.24. Matthew 6.24 says no one, no one, not you, not me, no one, can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or he, he will hold to one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and mammon. And the word mammon means riches. Mammon means riches, money, profit. So here's the question to ask yourself. Is my business approach to service is it Matthew 7:12, which is, therefore, whatever you want others to do for you, do so for them, which is serving God, applying His principles, His law, or is my approach to service serving mammon, the bottom line of my business? You're going to serve one master or the other. Test yourself with this scenario. 
A sale's completed. You've completed a sale, the money's exchanged, and on you go to your next customer. And then a few days later, or maybe even weeks later, here comes that person or that business, that customer that you sold to, and they're dissatisfied. Now, what's your view of this situation? Are they viewed as a customer or as a problem? Are they viewed as the man along the side of the road, one big problem, or as your customer? If a problem, then the thoughts may be, I have enough problems, I really don't need this. Exactly like we read there about the Good Samaritan. I have all these other potential sales I need to concentrate on. This is one big problem. This is going to cost me. This person is unreasonable. Do they think I'm perfect? And besides that, I have their money. I need to concentrate on the next customer so I can get their money. Well, where is that servant attitude? And what about your employees? You know, employees' attitudes toward customers reflect their treatment by their employers. It reflects the employer's or the owner's attitude toward customers. Employees cannot serve unless served. You as an owner or a manager need to serve your people so they can serve the customer. There's no way to instill a positive customer service ethic without a positive employee ethic. Remember we talked about you reap what you sow. Are you a servant or are you a dictator? Are your people able to do whatever is necessary to help an upset customer feel good about his or her relationship with your business? Too often, employees operate in a state of fear that their own generosity with a customer, taking care of the customer's needs, will be viewed as foolishness by their boss. Or their boss will be upset because they gave something back to that customer. So my question is, do you allow your employees to have a servant attitude? And I want to come back and ask the question I asked earlier. What level of customer service are you providing? Do you expect to be compensated for everything you do? For example, if you're in a business where you provide a service for someone, you provide the service, you do exactly what you said you do, you do what was required, the customer's satisfied, and you're compensated. Now at this point, customer's satisfied and you've received your reward in full. You did exactly what you said you were going to do. But I want to show you a biblical principle. I want to show you how to tap into the heavenly treasury where there's an additional reward. There's an additional reward besides the compensation that you received from your customer. And I call it the reward level of customer service. And let's look at Matthew 6 and read about this principle. Matthew 6, starting with verse 2. When therefore you give alms, do not sound a trumpet before you as the hypocrites do in the synagogues and in the streets, that they may be honored by men. Truly I say to you, they have their reward in full. But when you give alms, do not let your left hand know what your right hand is doing, that your alms may be in secret, and your Father, who sees in secret, will repay you. Well, what does that all mean? Well, let's define the word alms. Alms means an act of charity. When you're providing customer service, and you do something you're not going to get paid for, that's an act of charity. You're not expecting anything in return. The alms are to be in secret, the Bible says. 
In other words, you don't need to broadcast what you're doing. Just do it. Your father who sees in secret will repay or reward you. Doing something extra that you're not going to be compensated for allows you to receive a reward besides the compensation you're going to receive from your customer. Let me give you a true example of what I'm talking about. One time I had my house painted and there were, there were two painters that came out and they, they came out and gave me a quote. And the quote stated that they were going to prepare the house for painting by uh, coming out and power washing the, the siding and getting all the, the mildew off and they were going to caulk the siding where necessary and then they were going to paint the house. And they gave me a price. And we agreed on everything and a couple of days later they, they began the painting job. And the first thing they did was exactly what they had agreed to do in the contract. They came out with the power washer and they removed all the mildew. And then they caulked it and they painted it. They did everything according to the contract. And they did a good job. I was pleased. And I paid them and they received the reward in full from me. They did exactly what they said they were going to do and receive their reward in full by me compensating them. But my home had from the ground up about three feet of brick all around the house and then the siding would start. Now where I live in Georgia the soil is this red clay and when it rains the red clay spots on the brick and it's unsightly and periodically it needs to be cleaned. But it wasn't in the contract to power wash the brick. They weren't painting the brick, they were only painting the siding. But if they had gone ahead and power washed the brick as they were going around the home, in other words, they had given alms, they had the power washer out there, they were power washing right above the brick, all the way up, and all they had to do was just power wash the brick, make it look nice as they were making the rest of the house look nice, doing an act of charity, wasn't in the contract, something they weren't going to be compensated for, what would have happened is they would have engaged this biblical principle I'm talking about and they would have received an additional reward not just the compensation from me now I know you're wondering well what is this reward before I answer that I want you to think for a second what act of charity could you do in your business that would allow you to plug into this biblical principle allow you to reach your reward level of service let's look back at Matthew 7 I read this back in the talk, A Renewing of Your Mind. It's relative to what we're doing right here. Matthew 7, verse 11. If you then, being evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more shall your Father who is in heaven give what is good to those who ask him? Now we just read about giving alms and that he who sees you in secret, God is going to reward you. He's going to repay you for the charity you've given. And now verse 11 of chapter 7 of Matthew says, Your Father who is in heaven will give what is good to those who ask Him. In verse 12, we're back to that verse that I've, I've read a couple times here. Therefore, whatever you want others to do for you, do so for them, for this is the law and the prophets. You give charity, you're going to get charity back. So God gives, what we just read is God gives what is good to you through the people you've given something good to. The reward or the repayment of your investment, your almsgiving, your charity, without getting compensated, God gives you that after your act of charity through the person you gave the charity to. The reward God's going to give you comes through the customer. 
Now the question is, what possibly could the customer do to repay or reward you for your act of charity? Well, there's two things. One is repeat business. We mentioned earlier, we gave you some examples of repeat business. And the second thing is referral business. You know, instead of high cost marketing and advertising to draw business, you grow your business the most inexpensive way through repeat and referral business. The most inexpensive way to grow your business by developing that acts of charity, act or acts of charity in your customer service. And how big is this reward or repayment? It's great. Let me read it to you again, Matthew 6, 2. When you give alms and do not let your left hand know what your right hand is doing, that your alms may be in secret, and your Father who sees in secret will repay you. Now I want to give you another scripture that goes along with that in Luke, Luke chapter 6, starting with verse 34. And if you lend to those from whom you expect to receive, what credit is that to you? Now when you think about lending, for instance, those painters, they came out and they did this work on my house. And at that point, they had loaned their time to do my job, to do my house. They weren't paid. They were on lending time. They had loaned their time. So if you lend to those from whom you expect to receive, what credit is that to you? They loaned their time, and then they got paid. They expected to get paid for giving their time up front. Verse 35 says, But love your enemies and do good, and lend expecting nothing in return. And that's that alms principle that we talked about. An act of charity, not expecting anything in return. And your reward will be great. And you will be sons of the Most High, for he himself is kind to ungrateful and evil men. Now he's talking in this context about what to do if you have an enemy. The principle is to lend expecting nothing in return, act of charity, and your reward will be great. And then verse 38, it says, Give, and it will be given to you. Give your act of charity, your act of charities, your acts of charity, and it will be given back to you. Good measure, pressed down, shaken together, running over, they will pour into your lap. That sounds like an awful lot, an awful big abundance right there. For whatever measure you deal out to others, it will be dealt to you in return. My goodness. The reward level of service. So let's come back now to the question. What acts of charity could you do in your business that would engage this biblical principle? How do you develop the reward level of customer service in your business? Well, let me give you some, some steps to take. First is treat the customer as an appreciating asset, as we've talked about. You know, $100 of groceries bought per week adds up to over $25,000 over a five-year period. One customer, one mortgage closing, equals five more closings over the next three years. Appreciating asset, the customer. Treat the customer as an appreciating asset. You know, when you purchase equipment, it starts depreciating immediately. But a well-served customer is an appreciating asset. When you think of customer service, you have to view it as relationship building opportunities. You can't take any of your customers for granted. Remember what I said earlier, it costs five times more to get a new customer than to keep one you already have. Now a second step to move toward the reward level is to view every phase of your business through the eyes of the customer. 
redefine each part of your business in terms of the customer's perception of your business. You be the customer. Let your employees be the customer. Go outside and look back through the window of your business. What do you see? What do you hear? How many customer complaints are you getting? What services can you provide that falls into a higher level of service? You have to consider that every customer is a potential lifelong customer. And a lifelong customer that's going to generate word of mouth referrals. And you should emphasize to your employees as a manager or owner that the customer has to be emphasized as long term. The third step to defining or creating your reward level of service is to measure customer satisfaction from the customer viewpoint. I don't know if you've ever surveyed your customers. If you have surveyed them or you are surveying, what are the comments of your customers? Are their needs being met? Are they satisfied with your product or your service? Are they giving you suggestions to improve service? And if so, are you responding to them or are you just not doing anything? The thing is, you don't be afraid to ask the customer how you're doing. If you get a customer complaint, it's usually symptomatic of a shortcoming. But it means an opportunity to improve your product or your service. You have to be able to do it right the first time or make it right the first time. If you don't have a good product, you can't give good service. You know, your errors have to be reduced to a minimum. You must have a system, processes in place to assure the quality product and service that you want to provide. You have to provide excellent training of your employees, focusing on customer service. They must understand the level of customer service that is required by you in your, in your business. The fifth thing is you must measure performance within your company. If you don't measure, the quality of your product and or, or service won't improve. I remember the time I was doing consulting work with, with the largest camera repair company in the southeast. And while I was sitting in the, a large open area and I was having a discussion with Jennifer, who was the manager over all the, all the administrative employees. And Jennifer had worked every position, every administrative position in the company. She knew how to do everything as far as the administrative part of the company. And as we were talking, I noticed these two employees on the other side of the room, and they had these, these carts, that, these rolling carts, and they were full of cameras. There was like three levels cameras on each cart. What do these employees do? What are their responsibilities? There was two of them over there. And she explained that, that the cameras on the carts were in for repair and the employees, those employees had to enter the information into the computer system and then send the cameras to the repair department. So they, they had to enter the uh, owner's name and the address and the phone number and the make and model of the camera and the serial number and the date that they entered it and basically what was wrong with the camera and whether it was a rush or normal service turnaround time. So I asked Jennifer, I said, well, how many cameras should each of them be entering per hour? And Jennifer's answer was she didn't know. Now keep in mind how Jennifer had done this job, but she didn't know how many they should be entering. Well, Jennifer and I, we were developing this training manual, and we were going to be spending most of the day together in this room. So I said, well, Jennifer, while we're working, let's measure the productivity of these two employees. Let's see how many cameras they'll input in one hour. So we did. While we were working, we, would, we kept track of an hour and we measured their productivity. And one of them 
completed 12 cameras, entered 12 cameras in that hour, and the other one entered 10. And after we found this out, Jennifer's reaction was absolutely one of disbelief. And the disbelief was that their productivity was so low. And I said, Jennifer, before I come back two days from now, you input cameras for an hour and see how many you complete. As it turned out, Jennifer couldn't wait two days. She called me the next day, practically blowing my eardrum out with the news. She had completed 48 cameras in one hour. I said, okay, okay, get a hold of yourself. Calm down. As my eardrum began to ache, Jennifer was just yelling into the phone. I'll be in tomorrow and we'll discuss what to do. So the next day I came in and Jennifer was somewhat calmer and I asked her what she wanted to do. And she said, well, she'd been thinking about it and she decided she felt they could do 30 per hour. She wasn't going to ask them to do as many as she had done, but they were only doing 12 and 10 per hour. So she felt 30. She would be very happy if they could do 30 an hour. She met with them and she told them exactly what she expected of them and that they had to do 30 an hour. Do you know that within two days, both of them were doing 30 an hour? But now the question was, how are we going to measure the performance? Jennifer couldn't sit there and watch them every hour. So how are we going to measure the performance? What we came up with was the receiving department where the cameras came in for a repair, that they would place 30 cameras on a cart. And then when the, when the data entry person was ready for a cart, the receiving department would sign the cart out on this form we had designed and with the time that it left the receiving department and, and who it was being assigned to. And so then when the data entry person finished the cart, the cart would be taken to the service department and it would be signed in by the service department with the time received on the same form. So therefore the difference in the times told us how long it took to do these 30 cameras. And then the forms would end up at the end of each day at Jennifer's desk. What did this measuring of performance do for this company? Well, it had a dramatic positive effect on the company's quality and its service. Let's first see how the business looked before the change. They had 10 to 12 data entries per hour, and this 10 to 12 per hour were causing idle time for the service technicians. The cameras weren't getting back to the service department in a timely manner, and the technicians were idle at times even though there was over 100 cameras in the shop waiting to be repaired. Now, because of this, it affected the compensation of the technicians as they were paid on a commission basis per camera repaired. They weren't on an hourly basis. Productivity was not being maximized, and the result, unhappy technicians. And these technicians were very hard to find. And when you had one, you wanted to keep them and keep them happy. But this also affected customer service because the technicians were receiving the cameras too long after they'd been in the shop. And by the time they finally received the cameras, they were too often not able to meet the company repair time frame that was being communicated to the customers. And the result, unhappy customers. It also, because they were only doing 10 and 12 an hour, it affected the quality of the repair. The technicians trying to meet the time frame would make more mistakes as they were rushing to complete a repair. Remember, they got paid per repair. So they'd take shortcuts, they wouldn't analyze as much in depth as they should have and in some cases about what the problems were. So they were rushing to not only not only because of the customer service, but also because they're being paid on completed repairs. 
So the cameras were being returned and the result, unhappy customers. So for the customer, not only did it take longer to get the camera back than what was promised, but too often the camera still wasn't working properly. And the last thing the 10 to 12 data entries were getting ready to cause was an increase in labor cost. Management's answer to these problems that I just laid out for you was to hire another data entry person to speed up the process. So management, including Jennifer, were interviewing at this time to hire another person. They increased their labor cost, try to get customer service in line. All right, now let's look at what happened after measurement of performance was implemented. Number one, it eliminated idle time for the technicians. The cameras were getting to the service department three times faster than before, 10 and 12 an hour to 30 an hour. Therefore, the technicians were repairing more cameras and their pay increased. Result, happy technicians. Second thing that happened, the customer service improved. The cameras were being repaired within the time frame that was being communicated to the customers. Result, happy customers. The third thing was the quality of the repair improved. There was a dramatic decrease in camera returns. And this improved even more as the technician didn't have to stop as often and repair a camera they had already worked on. They could do more first-time camera repairs. Result, say it with me, happy customer. And lastly, because of the increase in productivity, it was not necessary to hire another person. Who was happy about that? Management. Management's got to be happy about something here. Isn't it amazing how one measurement of performance can change the level of customer service? You know, over the years and the many, many businesses that I have entered in as a business consultant, the measurement of performance has been practically non-existent. Those two data entry employees became accountable by the measurement of their performance, and look what happened. Create the reward level in your business. Be unique. Stand out. Determine how your service compares to your competition, your industry as a whole. Are you just like everyone else in your industry? Ask yourself, ask your employees, what would you, what would they like as a customer with your business? Look at businesses and in other industries for ideas. Think about you as a customer. Why do you shop where you shop? What determines your choices? What businesses stand out in relation to service? A strong customer service ethic must guide your business, even if it means costing you profit sometimes. Remember, that cost is really an investment in future business. As the business grows, you'll have to take great care to preserve the quality of your service. No matter what type of business you're in, whether you're a manufacturer you're in sales, you sell a product, or you provide a service, the bottom line really is you are in the business of serving. It is true that you reap what you sow, therefore so positive customer service. Find the reward level. Thank you so much for the opportunity to share with you today.